Welcome to Scientific Characters, the podcast where we explore the history and personalities behind some of the famous and forgotten scientific discoveries. I'm your host, Erin McDonald. A big thank you to our supporters who are helping keep this podcast ad-free. You too can support for only $3 a month at Patreon. Just search for Scientific Characters Podcast. And if you're not able to support, no worries. Now it's time to sit back or start exercising or hit the road or whatever you're doing and enjoy this episode. Today we're going to be learning about Annie Jump Cannon, an American astronomer who's known for her cataloging of stars and her prominent contribution to the still-used method for classifying stars. One of the more famous historical women astronomers, Jump Cannon was known for both speed and meticulousness in the laboratory and her joyful personality. Annie Jump Cannon was born on December 11, 1863, in Dover, Delaware. She was the first child of Wilson Lee Cannon, a shipbuilder who turned state senator, and his second wife, Mary Elizabeth Jump. At this time, America was still in the throes of the Civil War. The Emancipation Proclamation was issued at the beginning of the year, but of course wouldn't be fully realized for another two and a half years. Scientifically, the Archaeopteryx had just been described as the first fossilized bird, the greenhouse effect was first identified, and weather maps were just beginning to be published by the Paris Observatory. Now back to Annie Jump Cannon. Her mother, Mary Jump, has been credited for Annie's interest and her love of science. While growing up, her mother would take her to the attic where they would study constellations out of an old textbook. Mary Jump also made sure to teach Annie about home economics, which will later be recognized as playing a role in her ability to organize data. She attended the Wilmington Conference Academy, now known as Wesley College in Dover, in 1877, when she was 13, and she showed significant promise in mathematics. Her mother encouraged her to study science, and in 1880, at the age of 16, enrolled in Wellesley College in Massachusetts, one of the top academic institutions for women, and it was founded only 10 years prior. It was here Annie recognized that while most would expect these women at Wellesley to be serious and academic, they were always laughing, and this philosophy she would carry through her work, approaching everything with joy and vitality. While at Wellesley, she studied under Sarah Whitting. She was the founder and first director of the Whitting Observatory at Wellesley, and we'll do a future episode on her as well. Annie would go on to write her biography for the journal Popular Astronomy. In 1884, Annie graduated as valedictorian with a degree in physics. She then returned home to Delaware to pursue other interests and skills. One in particular was a fascination with photography. Around this time, in 1888, Kodak released their first camera, making personal photography much more accessible. Another camera available at this time was called the Blair Box Camera. Blair would become a division of Kodak only 10 years later. In 1892, eight years after graduating and at the age of 28, Annie traveled throughout Europe with a Blair camera. She returned the next year and she published a book with a Blair company called now a little bit unfortunately, in the footsteps of Columbus, which included her own photographs and prose on her travels through Spain. The book was given away as a souvenir at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, and it has fortunately been digitized and made available for viewing online. 
Around this time, on her return to Delaware, she unfortunately contracted scarlet fever. She was known for experiencing deafness through her adult life, and this disease is frequently attributed as the cause, but not officially confirmed. This condition made it difficult for Annie to socialize, and while still known for her gregarious personality, she happily isolated herself in her research and data. Before we get to that time, though, recall she's still living at home, now almost 30, and unfortunately her mother passes away. This made living conditions at home difficult, so Annie reached out to her former mentor, Sarah Whitting, to see if there were any opportunities to come back to Wellesley and work. She returned to Wellesley at the age of 31 to work as a junior physics teacher. It was at this time that she began taking graduate classes. Her experience and passion for photography made the field of spectroscopy a particular interest for her. So let's take a moment to talk about what spectroscopy is and how it works, since it's a major part of Annie Jump Cannon's legacy. Light is delivered through what we call the electromagnetic spectrum. Even though when we think about light, our minds go to the visual spectra, what we can see in front of us, but it actually encompasses a wide range of signals, from radio and microwave, which is kind of low-energy light, all the way up to X-ray and gamma rays, which are high-energy light and dangerous. When we observe the universe, we are at the mercy of the light that is delivered to us, either through emission, something that's generating light, through reflection, light that's bouncing off another object before coming to us, or absorption, which is the absence of light due to something in the way. So that quick primer on light and the electromagnetic spectrum, we also need to talk about atomic structure. Atoms are made up of a nucleus with electrons orbiting it at different energies. The number of protons in the nucleus determine what kind of atom it is, like hydrogen or carbon or iron. When light, electromagnetic radiation, hits an atom, the orbiting electron can absorb a specific amount of energy that makes it bounce up to a new orbit. It then loses that energy and releases the exact same electromagnetic energy back, but it's probably in a different direction. Believe it or not, this is how we observe and learn about 90% of the normal matter in our universe. For example, a cloud of hydrogen gas may have a bright source of radio light behind it, like a cloud in front of a street lamp. As the radio light passes through the hydrogen, it absorbs a specific frequency out of that spectrum and kicks it back out again at a different angle. So when we look directly at the radio source, the source of this light, we see a gap in the spectrum at that exact amount of energy that's favored by hydrogen. When we look at the light coming from the sun, for example, you can run it through a super fancy prism and see all the colors of the rainbow. So if your prism or your spectra is good enough, you can see that there are gaps in the light, which tells us what was being absorbed by the star's atmosphere as the light was leaving the core. Now, if this is confusing, if I lost you, that's okay. It's pretty complex stuff. But the mid-19th century was when spectroscopy really took off as a way of analyzing elements and materials, and was then extended to studying the stars, galaxies, and other objects in our universe. Back to Annie Jump Cannon. While teaching physics as a junior teacher at Wellesley, she was able to actually participate in some of the first X-ray experiments in the country. She decided to enroll as a special student at Radcliffe College to further her studies. 
Radcliffe at the time was a women's college attached to Harvard, which was still a men's-only university. However, students at Radcliffe had access to a much better telescope, and Annie Jump Cannon focused on astronomy. After studying for two years at Radcliffe and teaching at Wellesley, Annie was hired to work at the Harvard College Observatory under a researcher there named Edward Pickering. Pickering hired a group of women called computers, whose job it was to catalog and classify stars based on their spectra. This was in service of completing the Henry Draper catalog. This catalog had the goal of mapping and defining every single star in the sky with a magnitude of 9, which is about 16 times fainter than the human eye can see. Now, the widow of Henry Draper, Mary Anna Draper, she set up a fund to support and continue this work. As was done at the time, the men would operate the telescopes and take the images, while the women examined the data, did the calculations, and the cataloging. All of these women are amazing in their own right, especially at this time. They were paid minimally for their work and frequently were criticized for being out of their place and not being housewives. One of these women, Henrietta Swan Levitt, also shared the experience of being deaf, and thus formed a close bond with Annie Jump Cannon. As their work continued, Annie became recognized for her patience and her tidiness for mostly pretty tedious work. Now, there was disagreement within this community on exactly how to classify these hundreds of thousands of stars. Pickering was initially classifying the stars based on how much hydrogen was present, or how strong the hydrogen lines were. These are also called Balmer lines, if you've heard that phrase before. The ones with the most hydrogen were classified as A, the next B, and so on for 22 classes. But it didn't necessarily make clear the ordering of the stars other than the amount of hydrogen present. So the question was, do we utilize a complex classification system that required multiple parameters, not just taking into account the hydrogen, or do we favor a simpler approach? Annie negotiated a compromise between the two, finding a way to take one single parameter, the temperature, and figuring that would be more useful for big picture star population analysis. But she didn't throw out the alphabetizing system, but rather reordered it from the hottest to the coolest. O-B-A-F-G-K-M, hottest, coldest. Some of you might know the phrase, oh, be a fine girl or guy, kiss me. That's usually what astronomy students are taught, although there's many other different versions of that mnemonic that are out there. But Annie was the one that really came up with that particular ordering based on the temperature of the stars. In 1901, at the age of 37, after she was working in Pickering's group for over four years now, they published their first catalog of stars. This was by no means the end of the work, though. Annie Jump Cannon's skill in classifying stars became incomparable. Pickering said himself, quote, Miss Cannon is the only person in the world who can do this work so quickly, end quote. In addition, her affable personality also helped with the political dynamics at the observatory. She helped the men gain popularity in the community and helped broker partnerships and exchanges of equipment. She played an almost ambassador-like role within this astronomical observation community. In 1907, at the age of 43, she received her master's degree from Wellesley. Four years later, she was appointed curator of observational photographs at Harvard's observatory. 
Now, during this time, she was classifying about 5,000 stars per month. And in 1913, she was recorded as doing about 200 stars an hour, just by quickly looking at the spectral patterns. Over her lifetime, she cataloged over 350,000 stars, just by herself. Outside of her professional work, she was a member of the National Women's Party and was active in the suffragette movement. In 1921, at the age of 57, she became the first woman to receive a Doctor of Astronomy degree from Groningen University. The next year, the International Astronomical Union formally adopted Annie Jump Cannon's classification system as the official method for classifying stars. The rest of her life continued to be filled with firsts. She was the first woman to receive an honorary degree from Oxford, the first woman to be awarded the Henry Draper Medal of Honor from the National Academy of Sciences, and the first woman elected as an officer at the American Astronomical Society. In 1938, at the age of 74, she was finally appointed to a permanent faculty position at the Harvard College Observatory, where she had spent her professional career. She retired only a couple years later, but continued working until her death in the following year, in 1941. It's hard to share Annie Jump Cannon's story without it being a long list of facts and achievements. The woman led a remarkable life as an astronomer, permanently establishing the still-used method of classifying stars in our sky. You may note that we didn't really share much of her personal life after her mother's death, and that's not really by omission. By all accounts, Annie Jump Cannon's personal and professional life were one and the same. She never married and had no children. Her views on marriage and work were that it was fine for a woman to marry, if they marry the right person, but marriage should not stop a woman's work, in the same way it doesn't stop a man's. She contributed her success to her full devotion to her work. And of course, every personal account of Annie Jump Cannon mentions her likability and her big personality that she brought to the observatory. Now, it's also important to note that she did not begin this work in astronomy until her mid-30s, showing that it's never too late to find your passion and make a difference. Thankfully, her contributions and work have been appropriately recognized throughout the scientific and wider community. Though often delayed, she did receive the professional accolades she deserved and was able to see that borne out in her lifetime. That's it for today's episode on Annie Jump Cannon, the woman who cataloged the stars. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite platform and tell your friends. You can find us on Patreon if you are interested in supporting so we can keep this podcast ad-free. Support is only $3 a month, and it comes with early access to episodes, transcripts and notes, and the ability to suggest future topics. Just go to patreon.com and search for Scientific Characters Podcast. If you are not able or interested in financially supporting, no worries. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for listening. This has been your host, Aaron McDonald, bringing you the characters behind the science. Until next time.